Heavenly Father, Father, we do care to know the truth of these things, of whatever you may choose to teach us. We care, Father, to treat your word properly and to go through it holistically, to know the whole counsel of your word. And we know, Father, there'll be times when the the subject on the page may be one we don't want to hear because it convicts us, because it reminds us of how far we are from the glory of God. And yet, Father, we would rather know the truth than think we are right. We would rather hear from you than rest on our own understanding. And we want to be, Father, the man or woman you've called us to be, and we know that we won't be unless we subject ourselves to the word of God, consult it, and live according to it. And so I ask, Father, that through my words you would speak and that my wisdom would not reign, Father, but yours, and that in each of our hearts the Spirit would speak the truth concerning the matters on the pages of Scripture this morning. We put these things in your hands and trust in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we reach a division in the book of Corinthians this morning. In the first six chapters of this book, we've seen Paul admonishing the church for a whole bunch of things that he's heard that are going on in this church and that he knows are incorrect. And most of it traces to their immaturity and their arrogance. And that's comprised the first part of this letter. But there's a second part to this letter as well. And the second part is still a list of issues. But now these are issues that are not problems Paul has heard about. These are actually questions that the church itself posed to Paul through the delegation led by Chloe. So they must have had some disagreements. They must have had some confusion. And they said to Chloe, go tell Paul of our concerns and ask his opinion concerning these matters. Now, what they didn't expect was that Chloe was also going to tattle on them about a whole bunch of those other problems. So Paul opened the letter dealing with the issues that he was concerned about. And now he's moving into the second phase of the letter, which is addressing the questions they've posed to him. And so they've asked Paul, and we'll see this as we go through the text, of the remaining chapters, Paul has been asked a series of six questions, or so it would seem, on a variety of church life issues. And so he will talk to each of these six one after another. Along the way, he's going to venture off into some tangents of his own making because some of the issues they raise drive to some bigger issues that Paul wants to raise. But in general, he's dealing with these six concerns. Now, he's got a tough job here because He's not admonishing any longer. He's now teaching. And admonishing, if you remember, is the combination of teaching with correction. And that's what he did in the first part. Now he's going to back off. His tone is going to change. He's going to become a little softer in his style. He's going to deal with this in a different way because he now is just trying to answer questions. But there's still a degree of art to this. You can imagine if you've come to somebody and initially admonished them, you've put them on their heels. You've made them feel a little defensive. It's a difficult thing then to turn and go from that into a situation in which you're teaching and they're receiving that teaching with an open heart. It just is a reminder that when we write things, sometimes our writing can lead to unexpected consequences and our tone can throw people off. There was a time when a man and a wife were having difficulties in their marriage and in their home and they were giving each other the silent treatment for day after day as a result of their fighting. And after a week, this man realized that he was going to need his wife to get up early with him and wake him up at 5 a.m. for an early morning business flight he had to take, and his alarm clock wasn't working at the time. So he, he really needed his wife's help to make sure he woke up on time. And not wanting to be the first to break this little silent treatment thing that was going on, he decided that he was going to have to write on a piece of paper to his wife the following note. He says, please wake me at 5 a.m. for my flight. And he taped it to the bedroom door, and he figured she'd see it and... She'd have to do the right thing. 
Well, the next morning he wakes up and he walks through the house, finds the clock, realizes it's 9 a.m. Now he's furious. And he goes looking for his wife and he can't find her. He walks back to the bedroom and then he notices on his nightstand next to the bed is this little note. And he picks up the note and he reads it and it says, it's 5 a.m., wake up. (laughs) If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And in this case, the pen is the sword. So Paul's challenge is none too small here. He is, he is working very diligently throughout the rest of this letter to tone it down and, and try to win them back to himself, even as he has to deal with these issues. So let's notice how Paul speaks here with compassion. And in particular, in this chapter, he's going to speak with a good deal of deference and sensitivity. And that joke also serves to introduce the topic here, which is marital relations. We don't know the exact question Paul received concerning this topic, but we can more or less understand it based on the nature of his answer. And you can always tell when he's starting a new topic because he'll start at the beginning of the chapter with the phrase, now concerning. And that tells you, that's a mile marker that tells you we're on to a new topic. Well, he starts, as you see that here in chapter 7, with that phrase. Let's read 7, 1 through 9. And with those verses, we'll see the setup here of this issue. Verse 1, he says, Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Well, from Paul's opening statement, you can tell that the question he received revolved around the proper boundaries of marital relationships. That's at the heart of whatever they asked him. And so, as you would expect, given the fact that that's a sensitive topic, it was certainly sensitive in his day and it still is in our day. That would mean that Paul takes a very uncharacteristically soft and restrained, even deferential approach here. And I say uncharacteristic even for his normal writing. He uses phrases like by concession, not by command. And he says things like not I, but the Lord. And all of this is to suggest that he knows he's he's walking around a very difficult topic. The second thing you'll notice is how he moves back and forth between man and woman, husband and wife. In fact, he'll do that a total of 12 times in this chapter. In other words, he creates this perfect sense of balance and harmony within his teaching concerning marital relationships. There is no hint of inequality in this issue. In fact, this is perhaps one, if maybe not the only example of an issue in a marital relationship in which there is no headship. There is no specific assigned authority concerning this issue. There is perfect equality on this issue. So that in its way is very revolutionary for what Paul is saying here in a culture where male dominance was never more evident than in the marriage. So for Paul to address this in such an even handed way, it's a clear sign to us what biblically is different than what the world might be teaching concerning marriage. And then lastly, I want you to notice he leaves a lot of room in this chapter for personal preference 
for different styles within marriage, for different approaches to these topics. We have some room here, so to speak, to play with what we choose to do. But there are also some limits. There's also some standards. So let's begin with what Paul says at the first in this chapter. He begins by saying, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, to the young ladies in the room, this is a really good verse for you to pull out on occasion when dealing with annoying brothers or unwanted advances. Take them straight to this verse. The Greek word for good is kalos. And that word means either beautiful or commendable. And then the Greek word for touch, in this context, it literally means cling. And that word, to cling or to cleave, is intentionally designed to return our thinking to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. When marriage is first defined by God, we hear this, Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined, or that word is often translated cleave or cling, to his wife. And they shall become one flesh. So in reality, what Paul said in verse one is it is commendable for a man to forego marriage. That's the sense of what he's talking about when he talks about a man touching or not touching a woman. He says it's okay. In fact, it's beneficial or commendable if a man should choose not to marry. Singleness, in other words, can be a preferred Christian lifestyle. But as you saw in the rest of the passage, it's not right for everyone. It is not an absolute goal in and of itself. And throughout this discussion, Paul is going to talk in terms of trade-offs and in terms of concessions. There are a few absolutes, although there are a few in this chapter. But different Christian couples, different Christian individuals are going to land in different places concerning some of these questions. Like in this case, the question of whether I remain single or not, if I am someone who is yet to marry, is an individual personal question. And for some, it is commendable, but not for all. And Paul sets forth under what terms it wouldn't be good. And we'll come to that as we look deeper into the passage. But first, for all Christians, whether we enter into marriage or whether it is that we forego marriage, the goal is godliness. The goal is serving Christ. The goal is not piety. The goal is not abstinence or self-denial. The goal is not setting yourself apart in some way that by your choice you appear self-righteous or holy in some external way. The goal is what is the best way for me to live a godly life and serve Christ in the way I conduct myself. For some, the answer is through singleness. But for the most part, for most of us, the answer will be in marriage. Because Paul is going to explain later in this chapter that though singleness has significant advantages for the sake of godliness and serving Christ, if it is not suited for you and I, then it will be a detriment to us. It will detract from our godliness and our ability to serve Christ. Paul says, if living a life of singleness leaves us tempted into immoralities, and he's referring, of course, to fornication, to sex outside marriage. Then he says, by all means, it is better to seek for marriage than to be tempted and to engage in that kind of sin. Marriage is the one and only way we are to enjoy a sexual relationship. Every marriage must conform itself to the biblical pattern for marriage. A man may have one wife, Paul says. A wife may have one husband. We cannot use as an excuse our lack of self-control to justify entering into some kind of illegitimate sexual relationship or an illegitimate form of marriage in one kind or another. One sin does not excuse another. But in general, if we feel we should marry, then we need to. And if we cannot demonstrate self-control outside of marriage, then absolutely that is the best course. Marriage is the best course. And when he says cling or cleave, 
He's raising the fact that marriage has a purpose and we must operate within marriage consistent with its purpose. In Genesis 2.24, the core purpose of marriage is defined. Not the only purpose, but the core. What is the core purpose of marriage? For the two to become one flesh. That is its core purpose. And therefore, Paul says in verse 3, that both the husband and the wife incur an obligation or a duty to their spouse to show sexual intimacy. That duty to our spouse is not optional, though neither is it absolute. And in verse 4, Paul begins by explaining, neither the wife nor the husband have sole authority over their own physical bodies. The right to that sole authority, the right to make all decisions concerning my body without anyone else saying anything about it, that is forfeited voluntarily when you enter into marriage. We agree through our marriage vows to share our body with our spouse in keeping with that one flesh principle. So in a spiritual sense, we can say our flesh has become their flesh also and vice versa. So we must consider their interests and their desires when making decisions about what we will do with our body. We are expected to make ourselves available to our spouse regularly so that the benefits of marriage may be enjoyed as expected. That's what Paul's saying. And I understand that for some, that thought is, is strange because we wonder, why wouldn't we want that? Isn't that one of the joys of marriage? But as we get older and as life gets more complicated and as our bodies change, it does start to become an issue as to whether or not we want that in equal degree with our partner in marriage. And Paul says we need to consider their interests in our body as much as we consider our own interests in our body. That's why in verse 5, Paul commands that married partners not deprive one another of intimacy. The Greek word for deprive is actually the word for defraud, which I love because that's actually a really good way of understanding the effect of one person denying sexual intimacy to their married partner. You're defrauding them, you're cheating them of something they have every right to expect in a godly marriage. To a degree, obviously, within some limits, but on a regular basis. And Paul now is not suggesting, by the way, that if our lack of intimacy leads our partner to go cheating to go seeking an outlet somewhere else, that that's our fault or that we share in that sin. But what he is saying is our sin of depriving our spouse can become opportunity for Satan to tempt our spouse into unfaithfulness. So naturally, why would we want to do anything to make that more likely? It just makes sense. It just makes common sense. Sexual temptations are the chief concern behind Paul's comments in verses 7 through 9. He repeats again his wish that all men would be like him and in singleness, and he addresses those comments to those who are still eligible for marriage, to those who are unmarried or those who have had their married spouse die. And therefore now as widows or widowers, they're able to remarry. He says for those groups, it is beneficial or it is commendable again that you would seek for single life. And as I said already, we'll address why that's true later in this chapter. But then he moves on from there and he acknowledges, look, singleness is not for everyone. In fact, it's a gift, he says. It's a gift. You have to be gifted by the Spirit for this particular lifestyle if you're to be content with it. And contentment is important because if you cannot be content in singleness, then you're going to experience a natural desire for sexual intimacy, which unchecked can lead to a passion that becomes a sin. And that's Paul's concern here again, how we live our lives in godliness for the sake of Christ. If we deny ourselves marriage... We had better judge our hearts honestly about whether or not that is the route God is asking us to take. Because if we go down that road, our passion becomes such a distraction and it perhaps leads to sin. And it's actually working against the purpose we set out for in the first place. 
The one who says, I want to be single so I can really devote my life to God. But if you can't say that with honesty in your heart, you won't have time and you won't have opportunity to devote to God because you'll be too distracted. There's nothing noble. There's nothing pious about being single. If it's not a gift, it's all a work of the flesh. So if we do marry, Paul says, we share our body with our spouse, but we don't forfeit all authority over our body. This isn't an absolute here. Even as you and I grant to our spouses some measure of authority over our bodies, we still retain a degree of authority as well. This is a shared opportunity. So every member of a marriage has the right to express their desires, their preferences, and their limitations, and spouses should respect those things. Furthermore, you and I both know that things like physical limitations or illnesses or emotional stress or any of those sorts of things will come along from time to time in the course of a marriage. And that may preclude intimacy for at least a time. And then, of course, as I mentioned already, desire diminishes with age or opportunities because of busyness in the marriage. And even the occasional marital conflict will come along to interrupt fellowship in the marriage. We get that, right? We understand all of that. But whatever the reason for those interruptions and whenever they come about, Paul says those interruptions must come as a consequence of mutual agreement and then only for a temporary period of time. In verse six, he says, ceasing intimacy is a matter of concession, not command. What he's saying is this. The right of couples to put sexual activity on hold for whatever reason is a concession to the needs of the situation. But it can never become a command, meaning it cannot become a requirement that one partner levies unilaterally on the other partner for whatever set of circumstances they feel is necessary. That partner should never require the other partner to go without intimacy beyond what's absolutely necessary or desired for whatever the specific circumstances are. And I think anyone who's working with their spouse in good faith can come to an understanding of what those limits and circumstances are. I don't think this is really that hard in everyday practice. There are obvious things that interrupt intimacy, and I think both partners, if they're working in a common good faith effort, will see that. But then there are those things where how many times can someone have a headache? How many times can someone be too tired? How often can it be that this is not the right night? You know what I'm getting to here, right? There's a point at which we can use excuses to stand in the way of doing the right thing by our spouse, and we need to be conscious of that. Our body is not our own. Our concern should be to accommodate our spouse's desires in the interest of maintaining a healthy and loving marriage. But, on the other hand, our goal is not to achieve some Hollywood idealistic pattern of intimacy because everyone's pattern is going to be different. The issue is to partner, to work together for what is best for that marriage and not to be unilateral in one decision one way or the other. By the way, this principle that's behind all of this teaching, the principle that our body is not our own, this extends into other areas of married life, I believe. I don't think this principle stops at the bedroom door. How a husband or wife cares for their body in any sense is a matter of common concern or common interest in the marriage. Your body is not your own. The decisions of what you eat, the decision of how you maintain your health, how much sleep you get, how you respond to illnesses, even the risks you're willing to take with your body, all of those are decisions that your spouse has a vested interest in. And therefore, you're not alone in those decisions. And you should take into account your spouse's concerns for those things, equal to your own. When you dismiss, or when I dismiss our marriage partner's concerns for our body's well-being, we're not only dismissing potentially helpful advice, we're actually sinning. Because we're acting selfishly concerning property that is not ours alone. When we sin in this way, we're sinning no different than if we were denying our neighbor access to his property. It is, in a sense, a shared property that we have to concern ourselves with here. 
As I said earlier, this is, I think, the one and maybe the only one exception that I know of in Scripture to a husband's authority in the home. A wife has equal interest in his body. He does not have veto authority on this issue, as far as I can tell in Scripture. A man's headship in his home does not trump his wife's rights to his body. Next, Paul turns to the sanctity of marriage, verses 10 and 11. He says, to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. The Lord teaches the church that a wife is not to leave her husband and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, you notice Paul uses different words there depending on who's the one acting. A wife leaving, but a husband divorcing. Well, what he's doing is he's reflecting Greek society. In Greek society, a wife had no legal standing. And therefore, she could not legally initiate divorce proceedings against her husband, even if she wanted to. But what she could do if she was determined to leave the marriage, what she could do is just walk away. She could run away from the family, run away from him. She might hope to start her life again somewhere else. She may have had someone she could depend on to take care of her. But whatever the situation is, she's given up on her husband. The man, on the other hand, could divorce his wife under law and he could go and then find some excuse, some reason to be dissatisfied with her and find a judge to grant a divorce. But Paul says in either case, the Lord has spoken on this issue and says it is wrong for us to end a marriage. Paul adds, these instructions are from the Lord. Now, what I think he's saying here is not that, hey, the stuff I wrote earlier, you can kind of take it or leave it. But this stuff you need to hold on to. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying that we have no latitude in applying these instructions. In contrast to what he was teaching earlier, where there were some options, there were some concessions, there were some latitude. He says, on this one, we don't have any options. We don't have any latitude. We have unbendable expectations set by Christ himself, which we must abide by. And they apply equally to all Christians. We are not permitted to bend the rules here to suit our own desires. Even Paul's comment in verse 11, I think, is noteworthy because he says, When the woman is to leave, she must return to her own husband. Even that says something about the strength of the marriage's bond from God's point of view. Even after there's been a separation, at least from a human point of view, as in a woman leaving her husband, perhaps because he abused her, perhaps he was abusing the children, and she thought the only option I have to protect myself or my children is to leave this man. Even when that situation, that extreme situation of separation, might be preferable to staying together, nevertheless... No matter the reason for the separation, that marriage is not dissolved. That marriage cannot end. Their separation might be a necessity, but that doesn't mean the marriage is ended. Until death do you part, according to the scriptures. Paul raises this question of the Lord's teaching. The Lord taught this. And what he's referring to is a couple of places we can find in the, in the Gospels where Christ taught concerning this principle. Let's look at those just briefly. Matthew 5.32 and Matthew 19.9, and there's some places in Mark's gospel and Luke's as well where you see the same things. But those two in Matthew pretty much cover it. Matthew 5.32 says, Jesus speaking, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then in Matthew 19.9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Jesus teaches, plainly, that divorce and remarriage inevitably involves an act of adultery. Now, he isn't saying the second marriage is illegitimate. It is a true marriage, but that marriage is being established through an act of adultery because it is a betrayal of the one flesh relationship that predated it in the earlier marriage. 
When one flesh has been created in an original marriage, you cannot form a new one without impacting the original one, according to Scripture. And therefore, we don't seek to remarry for as long as our spouse is alive. What do we make of Jesus' inclusion of this except for unchastity phrase? What are we to make of that? Well, to understand that passage properly, we have to take a note of the Greek word that he's using there for immorality or unchastity. Some of you may have it in various words, various English words. Matthew recorded Jesus' words, though, using a Greek word, pornea. When he says, except for immorality or except for unchastity, that word is pornea, which is the Greek word for fornication. It is not the Greek word, mokea, for adultery. In fact, if your English Bible uses the word adultery, that is a mistranslation. It is immorality. That is sex before marriage, not sex after marriage. Well, how can that be true? How can a marriage be ended by sex before a marriage if the marriage is already in place? Well, it relates to the way marriage was conducted in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, a marriage officially began when a couple was betrothed, or we would say engaged. In fact, during that engagement period, which could last as long as a year or longer, they were considered legally married, such that if they wanted to break off the engagement, even before they have gone to the point of a true marriage and consummated their marriage, even then, if any point in that time of engagement, if they wanted to break it off, they literally had to go get a legal divorce because they were just as legally married in that betrothal period as they were even after they consummated the marriage. So if in that time of betrothal, Jesus says, before this couple has formed one flesh, if during that time one of them goes and has sex with someone, fornication, pornea, then the other is not obligated to go through with the rest of the marriage because that one flesh relationship has already been established with somebody else. So except in the case where someone cheats on you during the engagement period, after the marriage is formed, it's formed, period. You know, there's a great example of this in the Bible, in the Gospels. Joseph was prepared to divorce Mary when he found out Mary was with child, but before they had consummated the marriage. His reasoning was, she's pregnant. Well, I know she's been doing something. And that's the exception Jesus said is permitted. Then, of course, the angel appears and says to Joseph, do not be afraid. This is not what you think it is. This is the Holy Spirit. Go through with the marriage. By the way, this exception that we sometimes hear in Christian circles, the exception that says, when my partner remarries, I'm free to remarry as well because they've already had their new relationship that breaks our old bond. That is a modern manufactured view that is not consistent with anything in the Bible. And I'll give you some reasons why. First of all, understanding it the way I interpreted it is consistent with the Bible's teaching concerning the one flesh principle. That is, that when one flesh has been established through the consummation of the marriage, no man may separate that consummation according to Scripture. No man. It is once and forever. Two flesh made one. You can't separate them. If we were to say that divorce is permissible because someone has violated that one flesh principle, it says that marriage covenants are dissolved by infidelity. Well, what would that say about our relationship with Christ? Remember, the relationship we have with Christ is established based on a picture of marriage. He is our groom. We are the bride. We enter into a covenant that is forever and cannot end. And even our own unfaithfulness, according to Scripture, does not break that covenant. But if it's true that marriage covenants are broken by unfaithfulness, then what would that be saying about our theology and the way it's applied to the new covenant? Wouldn't that be suggesting that if I cheat on Christ, then he as the groom will divorce me because I have broken the bond of our covenant? 
Why would God use the marriage covenant as his picture for how we are bound with Christ if it were true that that marriage covenant is only as strong as our individual faithfulness to it? There's no good news in that. Every other scriptural reference to marriage, whether by Jesus or by the epistle writers, consistently teaches that the marriage bond is unbreakable for as long as both partners are alive. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 6, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So if Jesus says no man can separate a marriage because it's a one flesh relationship, then not even a philandering husband or a cheating wife can dissolve that bond. No man can. Finally, there's an even bigger problem here for this interpretation. If we believe that adultery by one partner dissolves a marriage, then by logical necessity, it would permit both partners to remarry, right? If the bonds are broken, both are free. But we're saying then that Jesus is permitting a husband who cheats to divorce and remarry because of his cheating behavior. But a faithful spouse who's just abandoned by their husband has to retain faithfulness. How can one sin of adultery make the sin of divorce and remarriage permissible? It doesn't make sense logically. I'm not standing on logic. I'm standing on scripture. But you see the problems of that interpretation. So if we believe that unfaithfulness in marriage invalidates a marriage and permits another marriage, then we are free to make that decision any time we feel that one marriage partner has been unfaithful. I've seen marriages break up, Christian marriages break up, and the excuse for remarriage has come like this. Well, as far as their heart goes, they cheated on me. To have lust in your heart is equal to adultery. They lusted for someone else. That's adultery. They broke our marriage bond. I'm free to remarry. You see how easy it is to take that line of thought to the point where when I want something, I'll find a way to get it. Scripture teaches the opposite. If we are faithless, Christ remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So the marriage bond is just as secure as our bond with Christ. Therefore, we must approach our entrance into marriage with the same understanding. So if you in this room have yet to marry anyone who's still single, consider first whether you have the gift to remain single without temptation to sin. If that's you, then there is benefit in that opportunity. But if marriage is for you, then remain chaste while waiting for your appointed marriage partner to come along in God's timing. When you think you found that right man or woman for you, be sure as you enter into the covenant of marriage that you understand Christ's expectations. Marriage is for life. So choose wisely. By the Bible standard, we get one bite at the apple. We get one marriage relationship, death notwithstanding. So if marriage doesn't last, if you have a difficulty and you have to separate and that person walks away or whatever may come, you remain single thereafter until death do you part. That is the biblical expectation. Now, if a member of the marriage is unfaithful, that act is sin, unquestionably. But that sin doesn't end your marriage. The Bible asks us to forgive and to reconcile if possible. And then lastly, If a Christian does divorce and remarry, that new marriage is formed through an act of adultery, but that adultery is forgiven, just as every sin is. No one carries a red letter on their shirt. No one walks around with a sin that's unforgiven. All of us have sin in our past. All of us have been forgiven of that sin. The sin that we're talking about here doesn't hold some special category. It's not above all the others. It doesn't stand out in some way that makes us walk around with our head down in shame. And we shouldn't make anyone think that they need to do that. For as soon as we point out the splinter in their eye, we're going to knock them across the head with the log coming out of our own eye. Right. I'm not minimizing the sin. I'm simply asking us to consider it in light of how all of us have a past that none of us are probably very proud of. So we're not talking here about holding any special category. No one is perfect. We don't stand in judgment over our Christian brothers or sisters. That second marriage is legitimate. 
And our obligation to that marriage is no less than our obligation in any marriage. And that marriage is no less binding than any marriage. And our expectation is that from this point forward, not looking back, but going forward in our best efforts hereafter, we serve Christ. Throughout the rest of the chapter, Paul teaches on some other difficult topics related to marriage, including why singleness, as we said, has advantages. We'll look at that. We'll look at the issue of an unequal marriage, one in which one has come to faith and the other one isn't, and the challenges that brings. Hope that treated the material properly for your sake. I hope that gives the younger folks in here something to think about. The best thing we can leave our kids with on this topic is this conscious awareness that marriage is for life and that they need to see it in that way. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminder that your covenant with us is pictured by our covenant in marriage. That what we form, Father, is is important to you. The, The covenant relationships we establish matter. And for whatever may have come in the past, whatever our decisions were at some point before, we stand here today, Father, knowing the truth and hearing your word, committed to doing the right thing, forgiven for all that we have done, for all that we will do, And thankful, Father, for the grace that made that possible. Let us share that grace with one another, not holding each other in judgment for what we may have done in the past. But also, Father, I pray we would have the courage to speak what is true without excuse, without trying to make a bad situation look better. Just acknowledging, Father, that where there is sin, there is also grace, and that grace has covered everything. And then taking our lessons learned, whatever it may be, And using them to teach others, Father, let us help everyone grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to do that. And, Father, I do ask that our young people, the children we're raising, the people in this room and elsewhere who have have yet to understand marriage personally but long for it, I pray, Father, that they would take the words of Scripture to heart and approach each commitment with a desire to please you by faithfulness until death so that you may be reflected. The marriage covenant may properly reflect your covenant with us. Thank you, Father. Give us a good week into Thanksgiving. Bring us back here safely when when the time is right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.